Well, hello there, and welcome back to Seed Stories. I am your host, Zeke Greenside. On this program, we showcase a different seed variety each episode through stories, seed saving techniques, history, and providing unique interviews with seed savers from across the world. We are teaming up with Slow Foods USA on a six-part series focusing on the seed varieties in their Plant the Seed campaign. And here with us to speak about the campaign is Giselle Kennedy-Lord, Slow Foods Director of Communications. Hi Giselle, thanks for talking with us. I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about Slow Foods and its mission. Yeah, hi Zach. So Slow Food started in Italy 30 years ago. We actually just celebrated the 30-year anniversary of the Slow Food movement in December of 2019, last year. So I work with Slow Food USA. Each country and each chapter kind of does the work that they see as most relevant in our nation or our communities. Our mission statement is good, clean, and fair food for all. And the fair piece is really important. That's the part that relates to food justice. And so perhaps a little less related to the idea of going slow, but also taking a moment to recognize the people involved in our food system and whether or not they are being valued and treated justly as they should. So Giselle, you've been working on the plant a seed campaign through Slow Food. Now, how does that work? Yeah, so the Plant a Seed campaign we started a few years ago. Simply, it's really about school gardens. Biodiversity in school gardens is the main goal. The kit contains six Arc of Taste varieties. The Arc of Taste is essentially the Slow Food International and Slow Food USA list of endangered foods or rare and heritage varieties or production practices in food that are tied to significant cultural and historical practices. And then every time somebody orders a kit online, we send a kit for free to a school garden. School garden programs have a pretty wide spectrum of funding and support. So we want to make sure that these programs have seeds for their school gardens. And then in addition to that, the seeds that we're offering in the kit are biodiverse. So they might be varieties that are more unusual than the varieties we're used to and particularly kids. So it's not just a tomato, it's a Cherokee purple tomato. And it's not just a nameless lettuce, it's yellow cabbage collards. Those are two examples from our kit this year, both of which have an interesting story in this country and are really delicious. I think that one important piece that we picked up on, especially last year, was that biodiversity also means flavor. So when it comes to kids especially, the end result is not just an interesting plant. It's something that tastes really good and maybe it looks a little different than the tomato that they're used to. And then we try to encourage the same thing for home gardeners and farmers that to grow different varieties and to tap into that arc of taste list to see what heritage and heirloom varieties might interest them. And you can find more information about this plant a seed campaign and order a kit online today at slowfoodusa.org backslash plant a seed. The varieties in the plant a seed campaign are Cherokee purple tomato, yellow cabbage colored, Jacob's cattle bean, Chimeo chile, white Sonoran wheat, and sugar Hubbard squash. We'll be concentrating on one of these varieties for each of the six episodes. And this episode will be focusing on Cherokee, Cherokee, Cherokee purple, purple tomato. tomato. 
Cherokee Purple Tomato has a dark and dusty rose color with a sweet and rich, almost smoky flavor. Now we're going to speak with the heirloom tomato connoisseur, Craig LaHoulier, who both named and was gifted this now famous tomato. Thanks, Zachary, for the, for the chance to talk gardening and tomatoes. So my name is Craig LaHoulier and recently relocated to Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is uh, in the mountains in the western part of the state, about maybe 15, 20 miles south of Asheville. But it all goes back really to discovering the Seed Savers Exchange back in, in 1986. And I think of that as the heyday in a way, or really the big boom of when Seed Savers came onto the scene as maybe the most, and still to this day, the most important organization ever to form in terms of creating a vehicle where we can preserve our botanical heritage. But I started um, joining seed swaps from magazines, and some of the magazines aren't around anymore. But a fellow named John Green in Sevierville, Tennessee, I got a letter from him, and in, in fact, the letter, I've taken a picture of it, and it's in the back of my book, Epic Tomatoes. Um, and he essentially said, I've got a really special tomato, a purple tomato that originates with the Cherokee Indians, and um, you know, you're the person that I want to send it to, of, of anyone, essentially. So I get this uh, letter in the mail, and I open it up, and there's this packet of seeds. And I grew that tomato in my garden back in 1990 and uh, was astounded because this predates the black tomato craze. You know, we didn't have the, the 30 or 40 or 60 or 100 different purple or brown tomatoes back then. Um, it was ripening this distinct purple color. And I, you know, said to my wife, I hope this thing tastes really good because it sure is interesting. And it was, it was delicious. So I saved lots of seed and I offered it in the Seed Savers Exchange yearbook the following year. I did give it the name Cherokee Purple and um, then sent it to Jeff McCormick, a friend of mine who owned Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. And uh, Jeff grew it and he gave me a call and he said that he, he loved the tomato, he, the flavor of it, and he loved the story associated with it, but he was afraid that because it was so ugly and unusual, it would never be more than something, you know, in a fringe gardener's garden. It, it was not suitable for prime time. But he did offer it in his catalog in 1993 with the caveat that it was only for the very adventurous gardener. And it people liked it, and it took off. And so that's really how it came to me, is uh, somebody just serendipitously decided to send me some seeds. And I gave it a name based on the history that was sent to me, and I sent it to the right seed company. And I have no idea why so many people like it. So many people everywhere like to grow it. Um, but it just kind of staggers me to, to, to have been able to name a tomato that is out there. Yeah. I was just looking up uh, favorite tomatoes or top five tomatoes, and... There's there's brandy wine listed and then there's also Cherokee purple up right up there <laughs> right above uh, brandy wine so it's pretty interesting that yeah it still holds its glory to, to today. For some reason, people like the story, people like the color, people like the flavor, a combination of all three. Who knows? Now, what's interesting is you can actually use the Cherokee purple story to define so much around any heirloom variety in terms of 
the number of hoops that a particular variety has has to jump through, um, the number of times that it gets passed along the way from this family or that family. And I think the other interesting th thing, Zachary, that I like to think about, and I, I always like to use this as an example when I do my talks to help people understand what is special about heirlooms, is if you think if the if the Cherokee Indians hadn't passed it on to Jean Greenlee's grandfather, and if he hadn't passed them on to her, if she hadn't shared them with Mr. Green, if uh, you know Mr. Green didn't share them with me, if I decided not to send them to just the right person, which is Jeff McCormick of Southern Exposure, if you if you snip any one of those links, then we don't have Cherokee purple today. And I'd be willing to bet you can take any heirloom vegetable or fruit or anything like that and you can find where if you snipped a link somewhere, it, we wouldn't have it anymore. So there is something, I think that's one of the things that satisfies those of us who have fallen in love with growing heirlooms. It's not always about the quality or the color or the flavor. There's that extra attribute that you're keeping something going. You're, you're playing a little part of a role so that you know, my my kids and their kids, you know, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you, you just look out for the next 50, 100 years. We're keeping it going. It's it's not disappearing. And uh, as we know, you know, once living things are allowed to die, they go extinct. We can't get them back. So um, it, this whole heirloom gardening thing, I just love it on so many different levels. You know, maybe as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's so interesting. Yeah, you've been talking about heirloom gardening, and we know uh, a little bit about open pollinated versus hybrid, but uh -huh. um, would you want to describe uh, kind of the difference or different? Sure. Um... Yeah, absolutely. So one of the reasons that I like to tell people a hybrid can never become, a, can never be an heirloom is because if you save seeds from a hybrid, um, what you get will be a mixture. It will segregate into things that look like the two parents and, and combinations in between. So an heirloom um, is an open pollinated variety. Open pollinated meaning it's uh, essentially genetically stable. Uh, if you grow Cherokee purple and save seeds from it and the bees don't intervene, you'll get Cherokee purple the next year. Whereas with a hybrid, somebody understands that combining two varieties together, there'll be this synergistic effect and what results will be greater than the two parents. But you're actually in that hybrid seed packet getting the results of a hand-produced cross. Somebody's actually going in and um, taking pollen from what's going to be the male and they're pulling the anthers off flowers on what's going to be the female and applying that pollen to the tip of the pistil, which is called the style. And if, if a tomato develops, that's the hybrid that, that and the, the seeds in that hybrid tomato work going to the packets, which is why they're a little more costly. So heirlooms and open pollinated are not exactly the same terms. Open pollinated means will be reproduced from saved seed. It's genetically stable. Heirloom, I think of as, as, a, as a special type of open pollinated variety that has some age to it. Maybe it's 50 years old or 70 years old, and it has a story associated with it. The most important thing to know, I think, is that with tomatoes, you've got the male and female parts on each flower. So you don't need pollen coming in from a different plant or a different variety to create the fruit. The pollination happens as the flower opens and the anthers brush against um, the style. I didn't know this was going to be sex education, did you? <laughs> but, the, but, but there you go. See, yeah. you can grab, you got to grab your audience however you can. <laughs> um, 
but yeah it's kind of magical beans are like that peas eggplants peppers um a lot of people will say to me you know i i don't see a lot of bees around i'm really worried about how my my garden's going to yield and i'll say well you really don't have to worry about things like peppers eggplants tomatoes peas and beans they'll do just fine what you have to worry about are things where you get where you have male and female flowers on the plant and a bee needs to transfer the pollen from the male to the female. It's cucumbers, squash, melons, things like that. They will struggle really badly if we have reductions in bee population. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was reading um, a little bit about your book, uh, Epic Tomatoes. Uh -huh. yeah, one, one of the parts was uh, talking about how you uh, collect seeds from tomatoes. Kind of curious, uh, your method on Sure. Yeah, well, seed saving is kind of fun because you can combine it with uh, either processing or eating. But I'm a fermentation guy, so I'll, I'll, put the, I'll squeeze the seeds from those tomatoes in the label cups, and they'll go on my front porch. Um, I'll put paper towels over the top because when they start fermenting, it's one of the worst smells known to human beings. They, they really stink. Um, but that fermentation process is important because um, when you think about it, so a tomato is about 92% water. When we cut a tomato open, why don't we see little tomato plants inside? Because all of those seeds are essentially sitting in water. And it's because the seeds are protected by a germination inhibitor that it, and that is protected by the gel coating that sits around each seed. Mm. So that's how um, you can get a tomato and eat it and see it full of seeds instead of little tomato plants. Mm -hmm. Now when you start that fermentation process a few things happen. Um, you get a white fungal layer that forms over the top. Uh, you could be killing any seed-borne diseases that may be, have been on the plant but you're also breaking down that gel layer which allows the germination inhibitor to wash off the seed. Now just fill the cups with water, stir it around and um, you'll get all of the gunk floats to the top, the, the good seeds sink to the bottom, and just decant that off, repeat that a few times, and put those through a sieve. And you get nice clean tomato seeds that you can then, um, I scrape them onto an unglazed paper plate, label the plate, and then just leave them on my dining room table for a week or two. If you're just tuning in, we've been speaking with tomato expert Craig LaHoulier about the Cherokee purple tomato. And now we're getting into the local adaptation of this variety in different regions and different microclimates in the country. You know, one of the things I found about Cherokee Purple that maybe does speak to a trace of local adaptation is when I grew it in Pennsylvania, it was very, very, very good. When I grew it down, when I grow it down here in North Carolina, it is superb. And I think that when you think about it, where is home for Cherokee Purple? Well, the latitude line of Sevierville, Tennessee cuts right across where I've been growing it in North Carolina. And um, so it is probably a bit happier uh, where, when it's at its origin point. However, it does well, you know, I've had good reports from Seattle, from, you know, people in Minnesota, Chicago, even down in Florida. So people can make it work. Um, you know, the other thing I would suggest if people want to see ways that I start my seeds and do my transplanting and stuff, I do have videos on my website. Mm -hmm. It's it's free. There's no ads or anything like that. So people can just go to craiglahulier.com and look at resources. There's a pull down and you can see videos. They're, they're crude videos. They're from handheld cameras, you know, nothing fancy. 
but it shows people how I do my stuff. And, and anybody can email me anytime and ask me anything, and I'll get back to them right away. So I like to make myself available for, for all gardeners to be able to succeed and help them in any way I can. Cool, that's great. Great info to know and great resource. Especially now, uh, social distancing and <laughs> social on. distancing. God, Cherokee purple in the time of COVID nineteen. <laughs> I can see, I can see the future book coming out now. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this episode. Actually, we had so much good stuff with our interview with Craig Lahoulier. We made a separate, full, uncut interview episode for your listening enjoyment. So check it out. It's an hour long. Uh, We know you're stuck at home and you got some time. You'll learn a ton about tomato production, some tips and tricks, and hear more of Craig's stories. Well, I'm your host, Zeke Greenside. We hope you'll join us next time for Seed Stories and the rest of the Plant a Seed campaign varieties through Slow Food. And remember, folks, it all starts with a seed.